Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Katherine Shin. 48 million adults, or 23% of the adult U.S. population, cannot read above a third grade level. And according to ProLiteracy, which is a nonprofit for adult literacy and basic education, they say bringing reading levels up would generate an additional $2.2 trillion in annual income. Today, we get a deeper understanding of adult literacy in our country and across our state. Many people suffer from shame around the struggle to read and write. But literacy isn't just limited to reading and writing. It can also refer to basic math, comprehension, and critical thinking skills. For people who struggle to read, it creates a lot of barriers, and it also affects people's livelihoods and even our democracy as a whole. This disconnect isn't talked about much, so here to help us dig a little deeper to understand literacy and how it impacts our society is Aliyah Swaby, who is a reporter for ProPublica, and Mark Venace, who's the president and CEO of ProLiteracy. Thank you both for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks for having me. And you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Aliyah, we want to start with you. You know, In your reporting for ProPublica, you wrote that 43 million adults in the U.S. cannot read, write, or do basic math above a third grade level. That seems to be a huge part of the population. Can you tell us about what does that mean, really? Yeah, so um, first, thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, so that's um, a large number for a lot of people. And that's actually where we uh, started with our reporting is seeing that number, seeing the one in five Americans, adults who struggle to read English at a basic level, and wanting to know more about it. Um, what we learned is really that um, that population of people is everywhere and in, in throughout the country in all sectors of society, um, but a lot of times uh, hidden or, or actively hiding because of the shame and stigma that they have around um, not being able to read well. Uh, the population is is a lot more, um, you know, the, the definition of, of not being able to read, I think, is more complicated than people think. Uh, so it's not necessarily that people can't um, read basic words, but there's a range of low literacy um, that has to do with uh, reading comprehension and then actually being able to uh, function when it comes to literacy out in the world, um, when it comes to you know basic things like uh, reading a medical form or um, going to, to vote. And we're definitely going to want to talk more details about what you just mentioned, especially when it comes to reading beyond just books, say, you know, our traditional sense of what literacy is. But I do also want to talk about because literacy skills seems to be the foundation of our education. So, Leah, can you talk about, you know, how does it come about that we have such low literacy for our adults in our country? 
Yeah, so it's it's more complicated than than people might think at first glance. There are a lot of different interconnected um, and systemic reasons why people are unable to read, and also a lot of individual reasons why people are unable to read well. Um, you know, some of it is to do with our education system. Um, you know, there is a real struggle with schools in terms of identifying students who have issues with reading identifying students who have learning disabilities, that means that they need more support. A lot of students graduate or have graduated um, from school uh, without being able to get the support they need for things like dyslexia. Um, you know, other, other reasons are um, people who speak other languages and, and haven't learned um, English and haven't learned to read and write English. But I think an important thing to note is that even though a good number of people who um, are in that that uh, 40 million are um, people who don't uh, speak English, two thirds of the people in that group are people who were born here. So it is really an, an American problem and really, I think, an American duty to, to fix it. And Mark, you know, we've only scraped the very, very surface of this conversation so far, but we'd love to hear what you have to say about what Aaliyah has been talking about so far, you know, with literacy being the basis of our foundation, but the low literacy rates are quite low. Yes. Um, first, I would I would want to make sure the listener understands that, you know, we use this PIAC data to sort of get a range of where the adult learners are. And so when we say, as, as Aaliyah said, you know, they're not able to access uh, texts that are, say, above a second grade reading level, it's, I wouldn't want any of the listeners to think that that's a functional level because it, it's intriguing. In order to really navigate this world, if you're reading at, say, a, a 1.5 grade reading level and you can make it through day-to-day -day life, your coping skills are extraordinary and enviable. Um, but it's just that when we think about the type of text that we almost take advantage of our, our ability to when we exit a doctor's visit and we read the post-medical uh, um, you know, instructions, incredibly complicated, or we look at uh, what comes to us at the pharmacy, or we even think about the ability to pass a driver's permit test that we take for granted. Um, and then I think we can put into proper place the impact that it has on people's lives. And so, um, as Leah said, it, it's across the nation. Um, every county uh, has at least 6% of folks um, that are struggling with adult literacy across the United States. But then in urban centers and in rural areas, we see, you know, the percentage is much higher and could be upwards to 80% of adults are struggling at reading uh, below, a, uh, above a fifth grade reading level. So it's pervasive, but it's correctable. And Aliyah, as we have talked about earlier, this is such a complicated um, issue. And you mentioned that <laughs> learning disabilities like dyslexia could be a part of the problem as well. So from your reporting, what did you learn about how much do intellectual disabilities play into literacy skills? Because a lot of people either don't get help early or they don't ever get diagnosed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely um, a big problem. I know we spoke to a lot of people in um, who are leading adult education programs, um, and a lot of them could say, even anecdotally, that uh, the people that they're working with 
uh, you know, show signs of having undiagnosed learning disabilities where uh, they haven't, they didn't end up getting the basics in school. Um, and what I know from my reporting in the K-12 space is that, um, you know, if, if you are a child who is not diagnosed with dyslexia early, um, then your chances of, of being able to read well decrease over time, um, not just because of the ability, but also because you associate reading with with something negative. Um, there's less of a of a desire to learn and there's less of a, um, you know, uh, resources to actually help you be able to get to where you want to go. And Mark, both you and Aaliyah had mentioned there are so many different categories of literacy. And so can you help us define the changing definition of literacy? Because I think when we hear the word, we assume that we're talking about reading and writing, but it's, as you have mentioned, much more than than that. Yeah. Um, first, I'd love to just add on to something that Aaliyah said, because I think it's this, um, just when we think about how it's been so pervasive, I think it's multi-generational often linked with uh, poverty, socioeconomic disadvantage, as well as uh, across generations challenges with education. But I also think that part of it is that very often in our most disadvantaged communities, we have the, we're really challenged at attracting uh, large numbers of educators that are highly skilled and or investing in capacity building in those areas. So that when a learner is in kindergarten, first and second grade, they could really get the best instruction on reading, on on foundational skills. And and as Aliyah said, unfortunately, so many learners don't, whereas we find that nearly two thirds of children that are progressing into third and fourth grade are far below proficiency levels. So, I mean, I think we have to look at it on both sides on, you know, how do we stem that tide at the lowest level? and, and, and again, I think it's investing on both sides. Um, as far as the multiple literacies, you know, digital literacy is another area. Um, we think about medical and health literacy and financial literacies. So all of those areas are additional literacies that if we are struggling with reading and writing and accessing complex texts and information and being able to synthesize that information, then we can only imagine that if I'm doing a search, if I'm Googling something and I'm trying to find information, well, if I'm struggling to synthesize information on one piece of text, then imagine if I'm trying to find the best information across multiple, or um, I'm trying to fill out an application for something at my bank, and again, challenging. And so the multiple literacies, um, and certainly digital literacy is another area where you know there's incre- increased focus on trying to help build up literacy skills for reading and writing, as well as simultaneously building up uh, the learner's ability to access Um, digital um, tools. Well, and I love that comparison, too, because like we were saying earlier, we often relate it to, you know, reading for pleasure or for joy, which it can be, of course, but it's also something that we use and often perhaps taking for granted because we use it every day. So can you talk about sort of the disconnect between people understanding, you know, what their life would would be like if they couldn't read or understand how to how to fill out those forms or go through those statements? You know, what are your thoughts, Mark? Look, I mean, um, I often think about it with our team. We think about if there's a way to sort of get um, people across the nation just for a day to just, I'm I'm thinking of like even like some app or something where every single time we try to read something that helps us through our day-to-day life, we take note of it. And I I think it would 
really elevate in our minds and bring it to the top of all of our agenda of how we do take it for granted, how literacy helps us navigate nearly every moment of our lives, uh, of our waking lives when we're at work, when we're trying to help our kids get to school, when we go to the doctor's office. So I think that would um, really help people understand and have more empathy for others that uh, are not literate. And of course, the joy of reading is incredible. I mean, I'm an avid reader, my family, we're all avid readers, but I look at, and it's important to read for joy, but if you're just trying to make it through the day, that seems like a luxury that that um, we're not understanding uh, folks and the challenges that they go through every day. Well, I, I would love to hear Leah's con- comment on this. Yeah, go for it, Leah. Yeah, yeah, one thing I um, I wanted to talk about is, you know, reading for, uh, for pleasure, and uh, when we talked earlier about the the intergenerational aspect of low literacy. A lot of people, and I know Mark, you probably um, have heard this a lot. A lot of people who I talked to who struggled to read just wanted to read with their kids or their grandkids. Like there's, you know, maybe you you don't want to um, read for pleasure for yourself, but you want your kids to be able to do that in the future. And you want them to have an easier time than you had or your grandkids to have an easier time than you had and have a better relationship with reading. So, you know, I I think there's um, a lot of reasons why people want to learn to read better. Some of it is in the job um, hunting space and, and, you know, wanting to do better financially. But some of the reasons are really personal reasons that a lot of us share of um, wanting our our loved ones to to be better off than than we were. And I wanted to ask Leah, thanks for mentioning the relationship between wanting to, for a parent wanting to read to their kids. How does the literacy of a parent impact the literacy of a child? I imagine there's a huge influence there. Definitely. And actually, one thing that when Annie Waldman and I were, uh, my co-reporter on this, were working on this, one thing that really stood out to us is, um, unfortunately, in the U.S., unlike in other wealthy countries, if you um, have limited education and, and your parents also have limited education, you're a lot less likely to be able to surpass their literacy skills. Um, in other wealthy countries, that's not the case. You, you have a much more of a chance of, of being able to surpass where your parents were. Um, and it's it was interesting to us because it seemed like the opposite of the American dream, right? The American dream is kind of this this dream of being able to build every generation and become better every generation in terms of education, in terms of economics. Um, and in the U.S., you know, especially when it comes to literacy, that's just not true. And it's it's actually a lot harder to be able to overcome what you were born into, which is is really unfair. Yeah, no, that does seem very surprising, as you're saying. And and on that note, too, you know, Aaliyah, what does literacy look like by demographics? You know, where in the country is this occurring and how big is race a determinant? Yeah, so most of, by, by numbers, um, most of the people who struggle to read are uh, white and Latino. But uh, when you look at representation um, or by proportion of the country, um, Black people are definitely overrepresented, um, and obviously that has a lot to do with uh, with poverty, with who has the opportunities to get good resources in their education, um, who is underrepresented or overrepresented in special education, um, who is going to schools that have more money. 
um, those are all factors that that play a role beyond just racial identity. Um, and when you look at the country overall, um, as Mark said earlier, every county has at least some population that struggles with literacy. Uh, but you see the darker areas um, along the border, the U.S. border with Mexico, um, in Texas, you see it in California, uh, you see it um, in the Mississippi Delta and the Black Belt region across the south. And those are all areas where, you know, historically there has there have been um, reasons why those groups were either denied the ability to uh, be able to read, especially in the, in the case of, of the Black Belt and the Mississippi Delta, uh, or there are large populations who, um, you know, speak other languages um, and maybe the uh, bilingual education or uh, ability to get the resources to learn English in schools is not as robust as it should be. So everywhere you look, there are different structural reasons why, but it, it all is you know one overall large issue for the country and just a quick reminder for our listeners that you can also join the conversation 888-720-9677 or find us on facebook and twitter at where we live and on that note we're going to be taking a call from tom who's in manchester who would like to join the conversation tom you're on the air uh good morning yeah i live in um um, Manchester, we have our own adult education system that's self-funded. Um, but just to get um, to the point, I think a you know, proportionate number of um, of inmates in prisons and jail that you know, um, you know can't read, or if you have dyslexia or dysgraphia, or just a, another you know, learning disability that can you know, affect that, or if you're hearing. So I think that can be. Uh, Another issue in you know eyesight um, number one and two when you mentioned with um, uh, race I don't know if that can I'm not saying can be used against you but right now I guess you could be arrested about rap tunes or something like that that can be used against you in in, in court or learning one time about ebonics so I guess it's the um, whole language and phonics to learn from that basic and uh, getting parents involved if parents can't read or write too I don't know if that can affect the family situation financially and uh, and just getting that help that you need at, uh, at Pride, but also people aren't feeling, you know, judgmental against you, that you're not dumb or lazy, you, you know, if you have a learning disability or not, that, uh, you know, you just need that that uh, second chance, especially if you come out of prison, to cut down on recidivism and, you know, anger management, others, so that can, uh, you know, want it to lead to a life of crime or, um, you know, anger or something like that, and uh, to domestic violence. We don't know, but... Uh, we try in Manchester to, you know, you know, have uh, our town agencies, you know, help out families in different ways, and uh, and hopefully that um, you know, learning should be for everybody, and uh, you know, getting some kind of uh, education, whether you go on to college or not. So, I think you know, just watching out for that type of uh, class discrimination, and you're right. Uh, we live the rich can have their tutors and others, but, you know, it shouldn't be that way. You know, we should value all children. Well, I want to thank Tom from Manchester for the call, and thank you so much for your really good points. I want to ask Mark to respond to some of the things that he was saying, because it does relate to the conversation we're just having, Mark. Yeah, it does deeply. And Tom, thanks for your insights. I mean, and, and your empathy. You're 100% right. And when we think about folks that are incarcerated, adults that are incarcerated, 70% of incarcerated um, individuals struggle with low literacy. 
And yet we know that for those adults that uh, while in prison, those that participate in education program and that has a, a strong emphasis on literacy have a 40% lower uh, rate of going back to prison. So we do know that if we help folks on the path of literacy, it is from my perspective, having been dedicated to literacy my entire career, it, you know, it's the number one bridge to uh, attaining the American dream. Uh, like an example from a, a study, an economic study that was uh, for looking at recidivism, a dollar spent in correctional education, if we for every dollar we spend, we save $5 in reincarceration costs. So the, the data is there. It, sometimes I think it's the will that that's sometimes lacking or just figuring out how to exactly make sure we can scale um and just to add on to the other piece that Aaliyah was alluding to earlier which ties in what tom said is that for children that are born of an adult that is low literate or parent caregiver uh, they have a 72 percent chance of being low literate as adult um so from my perspective i wouldn't want a listener listener to believe it's a fait accompli it's not i mean we we can stem that but unfortunately, based on the current dynamics, that's the situation and the outcomes here in the United States. You've been listening to Mark Venace. He's the president of and CEO of ProLiteracy and Aliyah Swaby. She's a reporter for ProPublica, and they'll both be staying with us. Coming up next, we'll be joined by a literacy tutor with Literacy Volunteers of Greater Hartford. She'll be talking about her experience on how she got started as a tutor and what education or adult education looks like in her classroom. You can also give us a call with your questions, 888-720-9677. That's 888 888- 720 WMPR or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We've been talking about how there are many adults who struggle with reading, and not just in the traditional sense of reading novels, but with other kinds of literacy as well, like being able to understand a ballot, figuring out financial statements, and also having basic computer skills. So here to share what she's seeing from her adult students is Haley Guerrera. She is a basic literacy tutor with Literacy Volunteers of Greater Hartford. Thank you so much for joining us, Haley. Thank you, Catherine. Happy to be here. 
And still with us is Aaliyah Swaby. She's a reporter for ProPublica who's been covering the issue, and Mark Venez, who is the president and CEO of ProLiteracy, which is an adult literacy and basic education nonprofit organization. And you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Haley, want to start the conversation with you by asking, how did you first get started teaching adult literacy? Sure. So I, um, I've been a basic literacy tutor since January 2020, but I actually first heard about literacy volunteers of Greater Hartford when I was in high school back around 2009. I visited uh, literacy volunteers and got to sit in on, on a couple of ESOL classes. Um, that's English for speakers of other languages for our listeners in case they don't know. And that was in preparation for a service learning trip to Cambodia. So um you know, that was when I first heard about the organization. And then when I applied to become a tutor a decade later, it was really amazing to me to see how much the organization had expanded, like with a career pathways program and a child care program. So I always knew it was a very special place. And when I went through the training to become an official tutor, they gave me a choice. They said, do you want to be an ESOL tutor or a basic literacy tutor? And I just said, put me where you need me. And that's how I was assigned um, as a basic literacy tutor at LVGH. And it seems like that need is still really great because according to your organization, 19% of adults living in the greater Hartford area read at or below a second grade level. That's a pretty sobering number. Absolutely. Sobering is a good word. It's um, really opened my eyes to the fact that adult literacy doesn't get discussed a lot. Um, For example, when I tell people that I'm a basic literacy tutor and clarify that it's not ESOL, a lot of them look surprised or confused. They say, wait, these are adults you're tutoring and English is their first language, but they don't read. And well, yeah, you know, um, as Aaliyah mentioned earlier, Uh, low literacy stems from so many causes. It's, you know, undiagnosed learning disabilities. It's, uh, you know, some had to focus on survival or taking care of family and handling household stresses or some, you know, maybe moved around so much that their education just didn't make sense and it didn't fit together. And then honestly, just systematic inequality at school. So there's just a myriad of reasons why people would uh, enroll in the basic literacy program. And so when people ask you that, what do you tell them in terms of what does adult literacy education look like? You know, can you describe what your classroom is like in some of your students? Sure. Well, I, I definitely um, try to explain that literacy, and I know we were kind of talking about this, uh, Mark was was giving a nice definition of literacy, which I think everyone interprets differently. It extends far beyond honing reading and writing skills. It, it means increasing independence and personal power to act and, and resolve issues and communicate with the competence necessary to deal with situations and opportunities within an environment. Um, you know, a lot of uh, students um, th- that I have, um, you know, I w- what I try to do is, um, you know, I have a, a, this basic literacy program. It ranges from beginner level to preparation for the high school equivalency test. I teach a higher level course, um, and uh, 
you know, it, it's I'm, I'm constantly trying to demonstrate the utility of literacy. So we have a lot of rich discussions because I'm regularly reinforcing them with texts on familiar issues like current events so that they can rely on context and read better. Um, I think there is an assumption that uh, and this is what I tell people who who are, you know, kind of confused about the basic literacy versus the SOL. I think there's an assumption that because it's an adult literacy program that adults learn to read as easily as children or maybe through the same processes, but that's definitely not true. Um, each literacy student, adult student has characteristics that make them, you know, more amenable to the learning based on their life experience. So using texts on familiar issues or asking them about or asking them what topics they would like to learn more about really help keep them engaged and I think um, create a higher probability that the instruction will be more effective for them. Well, and I love hearing the passion in your voice, really, when you're talking about how to engage your students and get them interested in that relatability, I think is very key. Have you taught before? Did you have any teaching experience before you started teaching adult education? No teaching experience. Um, uh, although I I do think, um, you know, I, I see some of my fellow tutors, uh, you know, a lot of many are retirees. Um, they are coming in with an um, a background in teaching, um, but you absolutely don't need a teaching degree. I think all you need to be a tutor is an ability to speak English fluently and a passion to help others. Um, I, I do think it's personally uh, selfishly helped me become uh, a more creative problem solver, um, you know, to try to uh, to to adjust uh, lessons to to figure out, you know, what works best for the students. Um, uh, but yeah, no teaching experience for me, Catherine. Well, it sounds like the benefits go both ways. And you tutor part time, and of course, these students aren't in class all day. So, can you talk about the time involved in teaching this class and sort of the limitations around that? Sure. So, you know, we the, the class that I teach is uh, once a week for two hours. So, um, you know, and, and we do the program at Literacy Volunteers, the basic literacy program, they offer morning classes as well. I happen to teach an evening class uh, six to eight on Thursday evenings. Um, so that's part of the commitment for me as a tutor is committing to every Thursday, six to eight. And then there's, of course, some lesson planning involved, which uh, I, I would spend probably an hour per week on lesson plans. Um, and then, you know, you, you really have to optimize your time since you only have the two hours. Um, but I, I do think, you know, as, as you said, it's, it's mutually beneficial. Um, you know, these students, they make me more empathetic, more compassionate. They, uh, you know, expose me to a life that I wouldn't otherwise, um, you know, understand or know about. Um, and I think it is very, very impactful. It's, um, you know, it's not just helping one student. This work impacts the community around us and the larger economy, too. These these students want jobs. They want to better their lives and their families' lives. And they know that if they can improve their reading, they can help future generations, too. So for me, you know, three hours a week seems like a very small time commitment for a very, uh, you know, impactful uh, result. 
And Aliyah touched on this a little bit earlier, but Haley, I would love to get your your perspective from the classroom. You know, are you seeing any of your students that struggle with shame around not having these literacy skills? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it, I think, and and that's one thing that I'll say is, uh, you know, if you're, you're, if if listeners are wondering for uh, thinking about, um, you know, tutoring best practices, I would say always extend empathy use positive reinforcement. I'm a huge pro, uh, proponent of that because these students uh, are often very, uh, very ashamed or maybe embarrassed about their age. I mean, even just the simple act of filling out the application to enroll at literacy volunteers can be a really, really hard first step for them. Um, so just again, extending empathy giving positive reinforcement for even something as simple as showing up that's incredibly important i see that a lot that um shame or embarrassment or uh just feeling of of maybe uh awkwardness walking into the classroom well following what haley was just saying Aliyah, you also spoke with a number of people that struggle with literacy in your reporting can you share with us about those feelings that they have around having low literacy yeah definitely um so we, we did talk to a number of people um who did struggle to read um one woman um who we talked to uh, her name is is faye combs um and she uh I think was not able to read until she was in her forties. Um, and she actually uh, ended up hiding it from her family even um, until, you know, finally, I think it, it came time to to tell them um, because she was just struggling and they were like, well, we, we suspected, you know, we, we suspected, but we wish you would have told us. Um, and so I think that the, exactly what Haley was saying, the, the shame can really, get in the way um, of people being able to learn and, and surpass their difficulties with literacy. Um, I think in adult education programs, um, as I was saying earlier, people have a lot of different reasons why they want to learn to read better. Um, and you know whether that's because they are uh, looking for a better job or because they are um, looking to read to their kids, um, I think programs like the one that that Haley is is teaching in are really crucial to help people um, get past not just the literacy struggles, but also the the senses of of shame and inadequacy that they might be feeling from just moving through society without a skill that other people uh, might expect them to have. And echoing what you just said um, with adult literacy programs being super important, uh, Mark, can you talk about the gaps in literacy services, though? Because Aaliyah reported a lot on those gaps in these services that's, you know, including long wait lists and problems retaining students and the fact that most of the people teaching and tutoring are volunteers. Yeah. Yeah, the gaps are extraordinary. And, and Aaliyah and her colleagues did such an incredible job of covering our space. I mean, there's there's numbers that look depending on what type of program that articulate that anywhere from as low as three percent of adults needing um, adult uh, literacy support to ten percent, but we believe it it trends towards the accuracy of the lower are are currently receiving services. So just think about that. Even if we said five percent, five percent of of individuals that need the services are receiving them. That means the largest number are not. 
Um, in our member surveys, um, we find that nearly 50% of our programs have a wait list. And so therefore students are coming out for their first chance or their second chance. And yet there's often not a provider or an instructor to support them. I, um, I commend Haley on her work as a volunteer tutor. Uh, my wife and I are as well uh, for a local program here in New York, but we don't have enough volunteers. Um, we don't have enough instructors. 80% of instructors in the adult literacy space are either part-time or volunteers, and only 20% are full-time instructors. So, you know, we we need to put this at the top of the of our national agenda. There are things that are happening that are very positive. Um, you know, in doing that with our collective impact work at really trying to elevate this issue so that we can get more full-time instructors. We can get more funds to build capacity so that we can meet the needs of folks that are just that are just not getting the services that they need. And both Aaliyah and Haley talked about this too, but I want to ask you, Mark, you know, what are some of the things that are preventing people from getting help with literacy skills and perhaps discourage potential learners? Look, I, it's sort of, it, there's multiple factors. One is, um, as both Haley and Aaliyah alluded to, there is a sense of shame, especially when you think about the two-thirds of adults that are have been born here, educated here. And I'll even say with our three learners, Two of the three had gotten uh, a high school diploma, um, special ed uh, diploma, one of them, but were both reading at a first grade reading level. And they both felt, and as well as our third learner, felt such an incredible level of shame that they, they looked at it as their own individual failure. And so many of our first many weeks with them and, and early months was about building up their self-esteem and letting them know that it wasn't their failure and that in many ways the system failed them. And once they started to succeed, they started to have a deeper belief in themselves and didn't, they, they really kept saying that they're not smart. I'm not smart. I'm not intelligent. And, and so we, the shame is a big piece. But then as Haley alluded to, if you come out to a program, say, for example, you come out to a federally funded program, um, Often federally funded programs, you know, you're hit with a, a standardized assessment that's well above a third grade reading level. So you can imagine if you're struggling, that in and of itself is overwhelming. Many students just walk away and say, you know, I can't do this. Um, others will struggle through it, but it will tell them that they're below a certain level. So I think that's a challenge. Um, and we are trying to instigate some a project that we'll be starting shortly, which we call the Hidden Millions Project, which is about how do we get access and how do we do a better word at getting this information out to so many Americans that don't know that this service is there and figure out ways of, of sort of getting to them so that we can provide services in a better way. I think yeah, what you just said has inspired many of us in the studio to want to sign up the moment we get off air. So thanks so much for that, Mark. And Ali, I want to want to ask you too. You know, how does low literacy impact someone's career path and growth over time? Especially, what does the job path look like for someone who struggles with literacy? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I, I want to talk about one woman that um, I spent a lot of time with over the course of of this project. Um, her name is Jacqueline Davis. Uh, she lives in uh, the Memphis area, and um, because of, of um, you know trauma that her father faced when he was a kid, he ended up keeping her out of school, um, and she she got no formal instruction. And now, as an adult, she really struggles uh, to read, 
Um, she, you know, stumbles over large words. Grammar is really hard for her. Uh, she, when she goes to the doctor's office, she uh, has to ask for help filling out the forms. Um, and her career path was really limited. So she ended up um, working as a cashier um, at, uh, you know, fast food restaurants or, or um, local stores. Um, and uh, she often lied on the forms when they asked if if she had a high school credential, which was sometimes uh, the requirement uh, for working at those places. Um, no one found out, she said, but she was still, you know, having to, to tell um, them things that weren't true in order to get the jobs that she got. Her dream was to um, run her own produce business. She wanted to grow um, you know, fruits and vegetables and uh, sell them to people and, and run her own business that way. But she was really uh, stopped by the fact that she couldn't fill out grant paperwork. She couldn't fill out um, employment paperwork if she needed to hire someone. And so her dream was ended up still being just a dream. Um, and she was really uh, to the point of that Mark was making about some of the challenges that adult education programs are facing and the people are facing who are seeking them out. Um, she tried to attend one of those programs that, that had free classes um, in her county. And she actually was reading at such a basic level that um, that program was too, going too fast for her. And so she ended up dropping out. Um, she ultimately found a, a free program um, with one-on-one -on -one tutoring, like, like the one that um, Haley seems to be uh, volunteering with. And that has really worked for her. Um, but I think, you know, for, for these programs that are uh, run um, or, or managed by different states, um, some of them are focused on people getting their uh, GEDs and uh, getting job training, which is great, but they sometimes end up leaving out people with the most basic literacy skills like Jacqueline. Um, and, you know, those people either fall further and further behind or just get discouraged. Luckily for Jacqueline, you know, she was able to find something else that worked for her, but that's definitely not everybody's situation. Um, and, you know, it, it's, she's finding this late, she's in her 60s, but there are people who um, are trying to get promoted, are wanting to um, move up in the world, wanting to make more money, and they can't find the, the right program or the program is, is too difficult or too challenging for them, um, and they really struggle. We've got about a minute here, but I want to ask Haley real quick, you know, if someone might be interested in becoming a literacy tutor, what should they know about doing this work and what will you say to them? I would say absolutely uh, join us. It's an amazing staff who makes you feel very supported and uh, provides you with all the materials that you need and, and training. So training is required to two hour training um sessions uh but you know all you need to do to get started is to visit lvgh.org and go to the volunteer application fill it out and you'll get a very nice uh note uh, inviting you for a tour of the school a welcome meeting and i would just say um you know adult literacy can change everything health gender equality poverty many of the topics that we touched on today and 
every important social issue is impacted by low literacy. So by by stepping out of your comfort zone, you really are making um, you know a, a bigger impact than you, you even know. You've been hearing from Haley Guerrero. She's a basic literacy tutor with Literacy Volunteers of Greater Hartford. Thank you so much for shining a light on what adult education looks like, Haley. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Aaliyah and Mark as well. And for those interested, that website is www.lvgh.org. And up next, we will continue the conversation with Aaliyah and Mark. We'll dig deeper on how the lack of literacy skills impacts voter turnout during elections and what advocates are doing to raise awareness around adult literacy. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We're jumping straight back into our conversation with Aaliyah Swaby, a reporter for ProPublica. She's reported on how literacy affects elections. And Mark Venez, who's the president and CEO of ProLiteracy, which is a nonprofit for adult literacy and basic education. And so Aaliyah, you've done some reporting on literacy, on how it impacts voter turnout. When one of your reports you wrote, Given how relatively few people can swing an election, we want to consider what the impact might be of people with low literacy skills staying away from the polls. Can you share some of what you learned about that connection there? Yeah, definitely. Um, so we ended up, my, my colleague Annie Waldman and I, um, we looked at uh, voter turnout data in thousands of counties, um, as well as uh, literacy data uh, across the country. And we found that in counties with lower estimated literacy rates, there also was on average lower turnout. Um, and so, you know, it's it's hard to say for sure um, how people would vote if if they had the opportunity to vote. Um, but I think you can you can see from that that increasing uh, the literacy could also lead to more people voting and it could end up turning elections, especially um, given that so many of our elections, especially um, you know, in the last uh, several years have had really small margins. Um, and so people, more people represented is, is always good no matter how they're voting. And what should a ballot look like? Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think so one of the things that was most interesting to us as we were looking through uh, this this topic is that um, you know there's there is uh, there are best practices on what a ballot should look like and how it should be designed, um, especially for people who struggle to read to be able to vote on their own. Um, you know, I, I don't think a lot of us. Um, think about this too deeply, but for a lot of people with lower literacy skills, um, the process of voting can be an obstacle course. Um, and so having uh, better designed ballots can actually mean that more votes get counted. Um, so uh, the Center for Civic Design is a nonprofit that has um, laid out uh, what uh, this design should look like. So they say that 
ballots and forms should be written in simple language and laid out logically so that um, people are voting in the races that they want to vote for and for the candidates that they want to vote for. There should not be jargon or technical language in the instructions, um, especially for people who are voting, you know, for the first time or, or um, you know, are, are nervous to vote. Um, and then also they, they really urge uh, municipalities to test new forms on diverse groups of constituents. So, you know, maybe something seems easy to someone with, you know, a, a, a PhD in political science, but um, that's not necessarily the case for the vast majority of us, even people who have um, higher literacy skills, but especially for people who have lower literacy skills. Well, I know we can talk for days about this, but unfortunately, we only about have about a minute left. But Mark, I do want to ask, you know, what are some next steps you think we can do to help increase awareness around literacy and decrease the shame around it? One is I know that for All In, which is the collective impact group of all the leading national adult literacy organizations, one of our top priorities is about uh, raising awareness. Um and making more of the American public aware of it. Um, we know that we've just recently in February, we've launched a bipartisan Senate caucus uh, focused on adult literacy. So that's another way. Um, and then I think we need to focus on um, professionalizing the field, building capacity within the field so we can reach more learners. But I also think we need to be looking at digital tools and thinking about that as a scalable way because we have many examples. We have a tool like called Learning Upgrade that you know we see binge learning and adults are learning at all hours of the night. And so that's another way of thinking about how do we scale and reach more of those learners either on a waiting list or that working two jobs just makes it too difficult for them to come out to a program. So there's plenty of work to be done, but hope is there. And, and certainly a lot of energy around making this happen. Well, love leaving a show with hope. I want to thank Leah Swaby, who's a reporter for ProPublica, and Mark Benes, president and CEO of ProLiteracy. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. And pleasure to meet you, Leah and Haley. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. 